9, lesson 9, you do have all of the review in front of you. That is by God's choice, not mine, uh, because I usually delete that out of my notes when I give you uh, your notes. So uh, God decided you ought to have them this week, so you do. Um, Yeah, the way I do that is I type out all my notes, and I get everything the way I want it, and then I go back in and delete all of my comments, make the blanks. So you basically have the form. Uh, I just have all the words. But now you have the review uh, tonight. So week nine, uh, we are talking about fear not uh, for the second week. Remember, we talked last uh, last week about uh, fear and anxiety and how to overcome fear and anxiety, that it's really a trust issue, uh, that we do need to, a certain amount of coping. We just need to learn to cope. Uh, life is going to be filled with ups and downs, and uh, the more we learn to cope, the, the less down the downs are, uh, that we, we want to steady it out. I don't know if you know people that live like that. You know, some people are real high, real low, real high, real low. Some just kind of go through life like this. They're not real exciting people, but man, are they stable. You can count on them. They're there for anything and everything that you need them for, and that's where we need to get. We need to even the highs that are real high, sometimes they're so high you can't sustain it. Great to be there, great place to visit, but you're probably not going to live at that that altitude. Um, we always talk to high schoolers when they'd come home from, from camp or they'd come home from uh, a retreat or uh, the life conference. You know, that that's not the norm. You've got to learn how to bring that to this level, back down where you live, um, because we can't sustain the real high. So we have to learn to cope. Uh, otherwise, that high, when we come down, we may get back to normal and feel like it's fear and anxiety, um, to where really it's, it's just where life is. Um, keep things in perspective, develop an attitude of prayer and thankfulness, and learn to serve others. Now, that was last week, how to deal with uh, anxiety and fear. This week, we're going to uh, look at persecution, suffering, how do I deal with those, those things. Um, So let's open with a word of prayer, and then we will dive in. Father, again, we we come to you tonight grateful and thankful that you are our God, that you are a God who loves us, cares for us. Father, you know the highs and the lows in our life. Father, we want to be able to rely upon the Holy Spirit to level those out, where we live in a reality that can be sustained, that that we have do experience joy, and in the midst of suffering and in the midst of persecution, we can still experience joy, knowing that you are there and you go through it with us. Father, open your truth to us tonight. Allow us to digest it. Allow us to take it in, uh, in our heart and our mind, that we would understand it, that we'd be able to apply it, uh, that we would leave here different than when we came in. Father, we just thank you that transformation is a process. That we're, we're in that process of becoming like Christ. So tonight, make us a little more. Conform us a little more to the image of your son. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. It's a verse we used last week. We want to kind of build on it this week. It says, do not be afraid. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So we need not be fearful of the one who can persecute us or the one who can cause suffering or the one who can bring about anxiety. We don't need to fear them. 
whoever that might be, whatever that might be. But we do need to fear God. Uh, and so I know it's entitled Fear Not, but our first point is fear. Fear God. Um, and I want to read to you because I, I think we've lost this. And I say I think we've lost this because I read this. Uh, A.W. Tozer, probably one of the few prophets of his time, and by prophet I mean was able to see where things were, see where they were heading, and able to speak truth into that direction that culture was heading in. Not that he sat in a room, got a direct link from God, went out and spoke, but I think he was able through the Holy Spirit, through God, to just see the culture and to be able to interpret the culture for where it was and where it was heading and to speak truth to it. This is what he says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our image, mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. We can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Were we able to know exactly what our most influential religious leaders think of God today, we might be able to some precision to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. Without doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. And the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. Thought and speech are God's gifts to creatures made in his image. These are intimately associated with him and impossible apart from him. It is highly significant that the first word was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We may speak because God spoke. In him, word and idea are indivisible, that our idea of God correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. Compared with our actual thoughts about him, our creedal statements are of little consequence. Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. Fear God. If we don't have a right concept of God, it's going to be very hard for us to fear him correctly. We will either see him as an ogre, punisher, hard-handed, 
heavy who's just out to get us, if that is our view, then our fear is going to be one of terror, trepidation. I don't want to come. I don't even want to think about him. I don't even want to come in contact. I, don't, I want nothing to do with him. If our idea of God is one of grace, mercy, and love, and that only, then who cares? We don't really respect him. He's going to forgive me. He's a grace, mercy. He loves everyone. Isn't everyone going to get to heaven anyway? I mean, how could a God of love ever keep anyone out of heaven? You see, both of those extremes are wrong. Elements of right, but in and of themselves, they are wrong. And so we need to have this correct understanding of who God is. Tozer again, and I don't remember where exactly in that book he says it. I gave you the, the quote there. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. What he's saying is that we have taken this, this majesty, this almighty, all-powerful God, and we've reduced him little by little where he's nothing to fear. He's our friend. And yes, he is. But he's the all-powerful friend. The original was 61, is when he wrote this, 1961. And we've come a long way in the last 50 years beyond that. I mean, we've just continued. And so it's time for us to get a, a right understanding of God, that we understand a right fear of God, a right respect. So the first thing we have to do is we have to know his person. We have to know who he is. When the, when the church or a believer loses their sense of majesty, when we lose our sense of awe of who God is, the grandness of God, the bigness of God, we lose our sense of awe and wonder. And with no awe and wonder, we lose our sense of worship. And when we lose our sense of the power of God, we lose our experience of living in that power. When, when we lose the experience of living in that power, we we, we lose our dependence on the Holy Spirit, and then we lose our fear of God because he suddenly doesn't seem as real. And so it's only in a right concept of his awesomeness, of his majesty, of his grandeur, of his transcendence, of his power, that we can truly live the way he wants us to live. And so this fear of God is very important. When he says, be still and know that I am God. How often do, do we take him up on his word? How often do we sit still? You know, it's solitude. Silence is one of the disciplines. Not one that I'm real good at. But to be able to just sit. To be still. Know that I am God. To be still and think about his majesty. To be still and think about his awesomeness. 
of his grandeur, of his transcendence, of, of his bigness. I sit and ponder the magnificence of God. And then to take that into daily life. Because that's a right concept of God. And to understand that a God like that is to be feared outside of a relationship with him. Inside a relationship, he is to be loved and adored because of his grace and his mercy and his love. We need to know who he is. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God. To walk in obedience of him. To love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Why he gives them to us. It's why we're studying the commands. Because we need to know them. Because it is our, our obedience that is an act of, of love, an act of worship. If you love me, keep my commands. Not keep my commands and then I will love you. No. If you love me, if we are in relationship, I love you, you love me, keep my commands. And one of those commands is to fear, to have that sense of majesty, that sense of awe, to 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 walk into his presence or, or to come into his presence and know how little you are in the big scheme of things of who he is. Ecclesiastes 12. <clears throat> After A study of Ecclesiastes is, a, is an interesting study because really the guy is he's searching everything. We believe Solomon's probably the one that wrote it um, and experienced all that Ecclesiastes is about. But he, he went through and tried everything. I tried money, didn't work. I tried knowledge, didn't work. I tried women, didn't work. I tried anything and everything I could think of. It didn't work. Life is meaningless, utterly meaningless. Nothing that I ever experienced in this life gave me any meaning, any sort of meaning. And then he says at the end, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Solomon, wisest man in the world. God granted him supernatural wisdom. Tried anything and everything this world had to offer and came to the conclusion it really just boils down to fear God and keep his commandments. He turned to idols at the end. He did not end well. Solomon didn't. First Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Since we call upon a God who judges, that's what Ecclesiastes was saying. He's going to bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Every deed we do is going to be, he knows it all. He has seen it all. He knows what we do. He will bring it to light. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, meaning he doesn't play favorites, the same scale, he doesn't grade on a curve, live out your time as foreigners here. This is not your world. This is not your place. This is not your home. In fact, hopefully you don't even feel real comfortable here. 
Because as soon as we start to feel comfortable in this world, it's a pretty sure sign that we've lost the majesty of God. Because we should feel little. We should feel uncomfortable in this in society, any society. I don't care where you live. We should feel uncomfortable because this is not our home. We should feel as foreigners. How many of you have ever been to a foreign country? Good. It's uncomfortable. If you don't have a translator, if you don't have someone that knows the culture and can speak the language, it's a scary place. Because you don't know what to do. You don't know how to act. You can't communicate. We're to be foreigners in this world, in this society. It should be a somewhat scary place. We shouldn't feel comfortable. Because if we have a right understanding of who God is and who we as his children are, because we call on him as father, if we understand ourselves as a child of God and where we reside, where we are from, where we are going to back home, then this place is not comfortable, nor should it be comfortable. And this is a holy fear that we have for God, a fear of a, of a son to a loving father, a fear of displeasing God. I, I was a pleaser growing up. My mom and dad would tell you that I, I was very uh, compliant. My three kids are very compliant. Uh, we don't have to do a whole lot of discipline with them. Uh, they pretty much handle that they know right and wrong and they just don't want to upset us uh they don't want mom and dad to be mad at them to be angry at them and so they are compliant um that's the way we're to be with god that we should not want to displease him and so with 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 a healthy amount of fear we live our lives so as not to displease the father not not scared to do anything, but a healthy fear that I, I don't want to go the wrong way. Now, sometimes we can take that fear and allow it to paralyze us to where we won't go anyway. That's the, the parable of the talents. The one who buried it in the, in the ground, what happened to him? They had those talents yanked from him, given to someone else, and he was cast out. Okay, so we don't want to take this life and out of fear do nothing with it. God says, I'll, I'll go ahead and let you risk a little oops along the way. It's the trying. It's the effort. It's the relationship that matters. It's not, it's not the what we do or the, or the success, because is the success not ultimately up to God? Paul planted, Paulus watered, God gave the increase. The increase is up to him, not us. And so I don't have to fear and worry over what's going to happen I just have to make sure I'm in the mix. I'm either planting or watering. Whatever it is God's called me to do. And so I need to get out there. It's, it's that holy fear. I don't want to displease him. So I'm going to, because I love him so much, he loves me so much, I'm going to step out and I'm going to do the things he's asking me to do. I'm going to obey his commands. Our desire is to have our lives be a source of joy to him. That's the well done, good and faithful. We had a man in, in Indianapolis that just passed away this week. I got the uh, email signifying that Charles Lambert went home to be with the Lord. The most humble, quiet, 
If you didn't know him, you wouldn't see him. Servant of God. Many people that commented on that, actually, I think it might have been on Facebook, that was commenting on it said, I know Charles Hurd, well done, good and faithful servant. Because that's just how he lived his life. He lived his life to please God. Not extravagantly. I mean, not with, with show and not with incredible gift. And He, he didn't teach. He, didn't, he, he ushered. He was an usher. But he was there every Sunday, greeting, welcoming, warmly, anyone and everyone who came into the sanctuary. A servant. Just, I know his life brought a source of joy to God. He had to be 112 when he died because he was old when we left eight years ago. I have no idea how old he was, but he was old then. I was older, younger than I am now. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, Paul says, but now much more in my absence. When, when, when your earthly father's not looking over your shoulder, you're obeying not only when... Someone's watching you, but when someone's not watching you, that's integrity. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Work out your salvation. Again, I've said it before. I've, I know we, we know this. It's not work for. It's work out. Live out your salvation. Live out that that grace and that mercy and that peace and that joy that God has given you through the cross, live that out in, in such a way that, that it is fearful because I don't want to disappoint. I want God to be happy. I want Dad to be thrilled with my next move. And so I'm going to rely on Him to lead me. I'm going to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit within me to lead. And there's going to be times when I make a wrong turn and I'm going to get chastised for it, or I'm going to get, you know, that little twinge of guilt in me. I'm going to get that, oops, wrong way, repent, go back, let's do it again, start right here, let's move forward now, and learn from that. And that's what God is joyful about. That's the kind of life he wants. And if we if we live in, in a fear of displeasing him, we're not going to make too many wrong turns. Oh, they'll be there. We're human. It's going to happen. But fewer and fewer. Remember, we're not sinless, but we sin less and less as we go along. So without a healthy fear of God, there, there remains the possibility that God is, if I, don't, if I don't have a healthy fear of him, let's say I see him as grace, mercy, and love. And if I don't have a healthy fear of him, then there is that possibility that God is not all-powerful. I can pull one over on him. I can skirt around. I can do as I please, and, and he's just going to, if he's not all-powerful. And, and that man then eventually has no need of God. That's my uncle. He believes to this day God is a God of love. And he has reduced God to one he can control that he has no need of him. Now, he would never say that, but that's how he lives his life. I don't know the last time he's been into a church because usually he breaks out in a cold sweat the minute he walks in. We couldn't talk to him about, about God and, and spiritual things because 
he would get weak and have to sit down and not feel good. And I just chuckled because I knew it was the Holy Spirit. Because he did not have a right fear of God. He had a totally misunderstanding of who God was. So there are some of his attributes. Some of his attributes that, that we need to understand. What are some of the attributes of God that we, we have to understand in order to know God? What are some? I've mentioned some tonight. Omnipotence. All-powerful, omnipresent, everywhere, all the time, omniscient, knows everything, all-knowing. Got the omnis cleared. What else? Love, truth, consuming fire. What else? Unchanging. You know what the big Christian word is for unchanging? Immutable. It's just kind of fun to say. Immutable. Wisdom. All wise. Holiness. That's the one we a lot of times don't talk about. Is that holiness goes with justice, and justice goes with judgment, and he is a judge of God. That's the all-consuming fire. He's going to burn everything up. And what is... What is found under his grace and his mercy will withstand the fire. Goodness, sovereignty, full of grace and mercy, creator. Hey, there's a lot of attributes, a lot of of names, of characteristics of God. We need to know those. We need to understand them to get that right concept of who he is. Another thing we have to do if we're going to fear God correctly. We have to know His person. But the second thing is we need to take sin seriously. We need to take sin seriously. Tozer says, You and I are in little, our sins accepted, what God is in large. Okay? So all of the attributes of God in large, we are in little because we have that image of God within us. Being made in His image, we have within us the capacity to know Him. In our sins, we lack only the power. So we have, because go back to Adam and Eve, let's walk through this quote. Created Adam and Eve, created in the image of God. They had the power to know God. They had the power to understand God, to relate with God. They spoke with him. They walked with him in the garden. They they communed with him. I mean, it was a relationship like you and I. I don't know if God had a physical body. I mean, the scripture tells us God is spirit, but somehow that spirit spoke and Adam knew his presence. He knew when God came into the garden. So I don't know how he knew, uh, but the important thing is he knew. And there was a relationship there. And as soon as sin entered in, that relationship was broken. And Adam and Eve no longer had the power to know God in that same intimate way that they knew him before. Suddenly, there was terror. There was fear. They needed a covering. They made their own. They realized their own sinfulness. And when God came looking for them, hid. That was a wrong fear. That was a wrong fear. Maybe for their situation it wasn't too bad, but that was a wrong fear. That, that we have to understand that, that sin is our greatest enemy in our relationship to God. 
Our sin nature is a greater enemy than Satan himself because our sin nature is a tool that Satan uses to get at us. If we didn't have that sin nature, he'd have a much harder time getting to us, getting at us. But he's able to get in. That's the way in. And if we can kill that sin nature, if we can put to death the deeds of that nature, Satan has less and less power, and therefore our relationship with God is more and more powerful. And so we need to, we need to take sin seriously. Sin is the only thing that hinders our relationship with God. The only thing that can come between us is sin. Some attributes about God regarding sin, justice, holiness. God hates sin. Grace and mercy. We want to balance that out. We don't want to forget both sides of that. He is just. He is holy. Sin must be punished. Grace and mercy allows Jesus to take that punishment for us. Now, there are some rewards for fearing God. Psalm 25, 12 says, Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. Number one is, and there are many, we're only going to list three, that one of the rewards is guidance. Remember I said that, that, that we're, we're dependent upon Him and we've got to make that move. We, we've got to be moving forward. We're uncomfortable in this world. It's not our home. It's not a good place. It's not a nice place. We don't belong here. But here we are. And we have a job to, to share the gospel, to share that good news with other people while we're sojourning, while we're journeying through life. And who then is the one who fears the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. If you really are, are, are fearful, that right fear of wanting to please God, then God's going to show you the next step. If you're lucky, he'll show you consecutive steps. But seldom does he take you too many steps out. Just the next one. And watch what God does and get to know him and see him in that and in the next one. And, and he's going to guide the one who fears him, the one who wants to please him. He's going to guide. He's going to instruct them in the ways that they should choose. And so if you want to know the will of God, incorporate a healthy fear of who he is and a right relationship with who he is. Know him for his majesty. Keep that in front, and God's going to lead. A lot of being afraid in this world is the unknown. We're afraid of the unknown. With God guiding us, there is no need to fear the unknown because he's omniscient. Remember, that's an attribute we need to know. And if we truly believe he's omniscient, then there is no unknown to him. And, and if, if I'm, uh, you know, you've seen a, a blind person or, or someone who who's ha has a hard time seeing, they put their hand on the shoulder of someone who's guiding them. They're not putting their hand on the shoulder and while they take a step doing this to make sure the guy that, that's leading them is leading them in the right way, do they? No, they trust that person. They have put their hand on the shoulder of someone they trust who will guide them, who will direct them, who will take away the fear of the world around them because they can't see. It's unknown. It's unseen. God is our guide, our lead. We don't know what tomorrow brings. He does. 
we can put our hand on his shoulder and follow, knowing that he is omniscient. He's our guide. That's a huge one. Number two is mercy. The second one, Luke chapter 1, verse, verse, verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. There's nothing better you can pass on to the next generation than a healthy fear of God. And an understanding that God guides and that he is merciful. From generation to generation, his mercy extends to those who fear him. God doesn't give us what our actions deserve. That's mercy. Our actions, our sin nature deserves death. He doesn't give us death. And mercy is closely related to grace. That's when we get the good things we don't deserve. Mercy is getting is not getting the bad things we deserve. Grace is getting the good things we don't deserve. Salvation is based on His grace and mercy. We avoid the wrath of God, the fear, the terror of God. And it's replaced with a healthy fear of pleasing God, a desire to please, of of reaping the benefit of knowing Him. His grace gives us a relationship and a promise of eternity with Him. And the third thing that, that a healthy fear of God gives us is acceptance. Acceptance. We're accepted by Him. Remember I said we don't belong here? This world should not accept us. We, we go counterintuitive to the world. We're going to butt heads with the world's philosophies. Because they're not biblical based. They're not godly based. Acts chapter 10 says, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every... Let me start over. Then Peter began to speak, unlike myself. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Acceptable. And we can't be acceptable on our own. We have to continue to work out our salvation. It's the salvation that makes us acceptable. It's the love and the mercy and, and, the, and the faith that accepts all of the goodness of God on our behalf that God says, I'll, I accept you because you've accepted my son. And if we'll accept his son, he accepts us. And then that, that terror fear becomes a, I want to please you. A love fear. And so because if we have that, we have guidance. We experience mercy and grace, which are new every single day. We're accepted. We belong to him. We belong to God. And there should be comfort in that. There should be there, there should be uh, an energy in that, uh, in knowing that we belong. You know, when you're around friends and, and maybe it's friends you haven't seen in a while and, and you're going to get together you want to be there because you just know you belong there. You just belong with them. It just feels right. And that's the way it is with God. Once we were we were enemies of God, but now, because of His grace and mercy, and we've accepted that, we belong. He accepts us. I, I give you some further study because I, I love to give you books. Well, I at least love to give you the titles of books you can go buy. I would love to give you books, but that doesn't always happen. Um, Tozer made the top three list. Uh, the Pursuit of God, excellent book by Tozer. Most of Tozer's books were written or compiled 
after his death um, because they're just they took his sermons and put them together. And so these are Tozer sermons uh, in here, and uh, so we benefit greatly. Uh, the uh, the didn't even bring that one. Here it is: the pursuit of God. This one uh, is a great one for uh, from Tozer about this whole idea of restoring that majesty, of getting a right uh, concept of God. The other one which I read uh, to you from is the knowledge of the holy. And this just goes through many of the attributes. He also has one called the attributes of God, which I didn't put on there. Um, And then uh, Chip Ingram, who is quickly becoming one of my favorites. Uh, Chip Ingram has one, God as he longs for you to see him. And just so that we can get that right concept of who God is. Uh, Those are four great books uh, to read. So that's the fear part of fear not. Now we get to the fear not, that we are, are not to fear persecution. And I, I would have to venture a guess that most of us don't even know what persecution is. We think we do, because we got looked at funny. We got laughed at once. We got made fun of because we carried our Bible somewhere to work. They saw it in our car. And we we think that's persecution. That's not persecution. That's just not belonging. That's just not belonging in this world. Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You see, he differentiates between insulting and persecuting. Insulting you is not persecuting. It's insulting. Making fun of, okay? It, it, and neither is the saying all kinds of evil against you. Falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution, it, it, the word is to be understood as to pursue in a hostile manner. Okay, this is someone pursuing you in a hostile manner. Because of your faith, not because you're an idiot or a jerk. Okay, that I've got no, re, re, I got nothing for you on that. Change your personality as best you can. Okay, if you're being pursued, if you're being persecuted because you're an idiot, that's one thing. If you're being persecuted because of righteousness, that's what God's after. Okay, a lot of us get persecuted just because we have no people skills. Okay, we don't know how to relate to other people, and we get made fun of for that. We get yelled at for that. I'm saying learn people skills. Okay? That's not what persecution here is, is about. This is an idea of being pursued in a hostile manner because of your faith. In any way, whatever, to harass, trouble, or molest one. Okay? Beat up. Think of molest that way, not in the sexual overtones that it's given today. But, but physical um, pounding. To persecute, to be mistreated. Okay, to suffer persecution on account of something, and in this case, it's righteousness. The word is used of a wild beast pursued by a hunter. Okay, that's the picture. A wild beast pursued by a hunter. So you are the one being pursued by the hunter. And what does the hunter want to do to the beast? Catch him and pet him and feed him and take him home? No. Kill him. Destroy him. That's what the hunter wants to do to the wild beast. That's persecution. How many of you have ever been in that? 
not probably very many of us. Unless we had a retired missionary, he might have. She might have. Jesus is talking about people who have been persecuted and endured. Blessed are you. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. These are ones who have endured. They've gone on. Maybe the endurance is to the point of death. But they've endured in that they've kept their faith in the midst of it. Their faith never wavered. God was still their guide. They still lived by mercy and grace, and they were still accepted, not by the world, but by the Father. And they endured. Faith allows us to stand firm when it isn't popular. Faith allows us to stand firm when it's not always comfortable. I don't know of any of us that have faced imprisonment because of our faith. I went to school with a a kid who's now a kid. He's as old as I am now. Funny how that works. I actually think he's probably older than me now. Everyone else ages quicker than you do, right? Um, You go back to your reunion, they all look old. Um, and I haven't changed a bit. But he was in Egypt, uh, living in Egypt, working in Egypt, not in a ministry role. But he was in a ministry role. That's why he was there. His whole purpose for being there, but he took a secular job in order to get into the country. Someone found a copy of the scriptures on his computer. He was immediately thrown into jail because that was against. I forget how many days or week he spent in an Egyptian prison because of the translation of the Bible on his computer. Uh, He was released, came back home. He's now serving the Lord in Cyprus as a missionary there where he is at now. I keep in touch with him on on Facebook uh, to hear what all he's doing and, and training leaders in the church what he's doing in Cyprus and seminars all over uh, that area. Uh, but that's persecution. That's, that is having to stand firm, being in prison. Jesus was addressing his disciples very early in his ministry here in, in Matthew chapter 5. It's a sermon on his mount, sermon on the mount. It's probably his first public sermon, or at least the first one we have recorded, uh, that he spoke to the crowds and his disciples. Some of the disciples were there. And history shows us that the 12 each suffered persecution to the point of death. I don't know if you remember when we did this study and we walked through each of the disciples in their life. I think it was in the life of Christ when we studied those. And each one, history tells us, the Bible doesn't reveal how any of them died other than James. History tells us that they were all persecuted to the point of death. Uh, Either heads cut off, uh, crucified, Imprisoned, dying in prison. Yes, John died a natural death, imprisoned on the island of Patmos. He was stuck there. And so all of them faced persecution. Stephen, we read, was stoned to death. Many believe he was the first martyr, the one who died for his faith. You remember Paul stood there and watched. And then Paul, too, eventually was persecuted for his, uh, for his faith. John chapter 15 says, Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours. It's pretty cut and dry. 
you're going to be persecuted. It's going to be there. This is a reminder that not everyone's going to persecute. Some will come into the faith, which is what keeps us going. We keep going out there. We keep taking that risk of being insulted, of being laughed at, of being ridiculed, of being persecuted because someone I've become all things to all men by all possible means. I might win some. That's what keeps us going. 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Okay, what's this treasure Paul's talking about? The gospel. The salvation message. We have in jars of clay. What's the jars of clay? Us. Our bodies. Okay? Very fragile. Break very easily. Okay? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us. Life is at work in you. So death and life, right there side by side. Second Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Okay, a lot in the end times, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Uh, we keep thinking it's going to get better. We hope it gets better. It, it's going to get worse. Because it's going to get that that gap between believer and unbeliever of this world and not of this world is going to get wider and wider and wider until Jesus comes. That's what Scripture reveals to us, that it's going to get worse before Christ comes. So what can we do? There, There is a church part of the church, okay, part of the church. We're all part of the church. There's a part of us that is called the underground church. They live in countries where it is against the law to worship. It is against the law to read a Bible. It is against the law to own a Bible. Some of that is punishable by death if they find you having one. And so the reason why it's called the underground church is because it's been forced underground. It's been forced into hiding. Now, don't feel too bad for them because they're growing faster than we are. Okay, Because in the midst of that persecution, reality sets in. People live at a, at a higher plane of, of reality of, of who God is. They, they have that full understanding of majesty, and they know they don't feel comfortable in this world because this world will kill them. It's us in the United States where we haven't faced religious persecution or spiritual persecution forever that we get complacent that we get comfortable that we begin to look like the world and so what we need to do here is we need to be praying for that underground church because it's growing China Muslim countries Muslims are coming to the Lord in droves in other parts of the world. Here, this is where the Muslims are coming. (laughs) Here. You know, the Muslim religion, Islam, is growing in the United States. It's growing in Europe. What once was 
Western civilization, civilizations seen as Judeo-Christian Judea values, beliefs, worldviews is now moving away from that. And it is these churches that have been driven underground. So be praying for the underground church. Okay? Thank God for the freedoms we have. Don't take them lightly. Thank God for the freedoms we have. For further study on this, I've given you a couple books. One is a classic, one you may never have heard of. The, one, the first one there is called By Their Blood. And this is just a story of Christian martyrs, people from the 20th century who gave their lives for the gospel. Uh, some here in the United States, some overseas, most overseas. Uh, but they're just phenomenal stories that I think if you read them will inspire you. Inspire you to live in the fear, in a, in a reverent fear of God. The other one is Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, that, that book was written, I don't know how long ago, but it goes back to like 1300s, 1400s, 1500s. Christians who gave their life, martyrs there. And, and these guys kind of took it from where Fox left off and wrote about the martyrs of the 20th century. Um, those are two excellent books. I've also given you two, two websites. I spent some time on them this afternoon, um, just kind of perusing around and, and reading different stories. Persecution.org and persecution.com. Two excellent ones about the underground church, um, ministries that are going to support them, to encourage them, how to pray for them, stories of success, um, and stories of death, stories of martyrdom uh, in those. So just some excellent opportunities to, to kind of get a right perspective, a reality for what persecution really is, because we haven't faced it. And I pray we don't, other than the church will grow. It always did. Under persecution, the church grows. Um, so that's do not, do not fear persecution. When it comes, consider it pure joy, because we're, we're not of this world. We are doing what we're supposed to be doing if we come in conflict with it. Don't look for it, but if it comes. The second thing that goes right along with that is do not fear suffering. Now, this we've probably had our fair share of, suffering. A lot of times we call it persecution, but it's actually suffering. Revelation chapter 2, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer, he tells the church at Smyrna. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Eternal life. That's the victor's crown. That's what we're, that's what we're living for. That's what we're going to die for. To die uh, promoting the gospel, living that out. 2 Corinthians chapter, 12, or chapter 11. Turn with me there. Paul shares a little bit about his life. He lists all of his sufferings. Yet none of what he faced kept him from serving. It usually just spurred him on to serve more. Because he knew he was coming in direct opposition with the world, and that's where I want to be. I want to be doing the most I can for the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16. I repeat, and Paul didn't like to do this. He didn't want to boast about all the things that he had, had suffered. And it, it even, he says, you know, kind of feels uncomfortable for me to do this. But the Corinthians were doing it. And he says, all right, I'm going to put you back in your place. You think you're suffering? Listen to this. 
Let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, okay, since many in the Corinthian church were boasting, he says, I too will boast. You got gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. I think that's about the most sarcastic comment Paul could have ever made. And I lost my place. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. You're willing to put up with it. You just let the world push you around. To my shame, I admit that we were too, we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Now that 40 lashes minus one always brought you to the point of death. The, the Romans were incredibly good at understanding how to flog. Now this he said, I received from the Jews. The Jews probably put him up there. The Jews had no power to, life, to, to give that punishment, but they would turn him over to the Romans. The Romans would then punish him. 40 minus one, 39 lashes. And that usually brought you just to the point of death and made you suffer the most. Five times, three times, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Now, that's not on a boat, okay? That's floating, paddling, treading water, holding on to whatever you could to help you float. For a day, what do you say? I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. And he just goes on. This is what my life's about. That's persecution. That's suffering. C.S. Lewis says the possibility of pain is inherent in the very existence of a world where souls can meet. Okay, let's just tear that apart a little bit. Where two people can come into contact, two souls who are fallen, who are, have the sin nature within them. If there's any place where two of those types of people can come in, there's the possibility for pain. There's the possibility for, for suffering because of the fallen nature. And so we live in a fallen world. We, we live in proximity to fallen people, unredeemed people. There's going to be suffering. We have been blessed 
to live throughout all of our life, times in a country that has, for the most part, alleviated suffering and ruled by at least an acknowledgement of biblical truth, if not always by biblical truth, at least acknowledged it. I don't know that that's the direction we're moving, but it really doesn't matter, does it? We don't belong here. The world's going to do what the world's going to do. Sinful man is going to do what sinful man is going to do. Our job is to impact that world, regardless of where it's at, of what direction it's heading, with the gospel. We might be able to turn a nation around, and we might, by all possible means, just win some. But in that, in that endeavor, if we are serious with the fear of God, of displeasing God, and we move with grace and mercy and acceptance and boldness and guidance from the Holy Spirit, there will be persecution. There will be suffering. But we might win some. We, may, may, we might save some from an eternity of suffering. Our little short span of suffering How willing are you to put up with a little to keep someone from an eternity? That's the question we have to ask. That's the fear not persecution, fear not suffering. Because it's really, in the big scheme of things, very short time. Very short time. There's going to come a point where it's over. And if we have saved some, it's going to be over for them as well. And those that we can't reach, those that we haven't reached, those that are just going to dig their heels in and not accept the gospel, their suffering starts at death. Remember that all of Paul's writings were to those under Roman rule, a very pagan society. Nothing like what we live in. It was far worse than anything we've ever experienced here. So when we suffer, we've got to remember some of the benefits, and I'll give you three in a minute and a half. Suffering is good because it requires a dependence on God. Suffering is going to strengthen your faith. You get a little too comfortable in the world, God's going to allow something to rattle that cage a little bit. Take it for what it is, a warning from God, that you've gotten a little too comfortable. And respond in total dependence upon him. 2 Corinthians 12, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Doesn't make sense, but it's true. How it works. When I am weak, God is strong in me. God has more more room to to move and work in me when when I am weak. When I'm not pushing myself out there and, and doing my thing and I'm allowing God to do his thing. Second thing that suffering does for us is it produces growth. We don't grow in good times. When everything is great, we get complacent. That's our sin nature. 
We grow in suffering. We grow when things are in turmoil. That's because it requires a dependence upon God, which results in growth. Romans chapter 5, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, given, who has been given to us. You see, suffering produces hope through character, through perseverance. That's what we want, don't we? We have that hope within us, but it's suffering that's going to bring that hope alive through perseverance, through character. So welcome suffering when it comes. Don't go looking for it. It'll find you. If you're doing what God is asking you to do, it'll find you. Third thing is it forces right priorities. It forces us to think rightly. Remember we said we need to think Christianly? This suffering forces us to think Christianly, to think like Christ. Romans chapter 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present, present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The right perspective. Get this little itty-bitty time frame right here, this little itty-bitty suffering that you're going through. Put it in perspective of the glory that we're going to share with Christ for all eternity, and this disappears. It doesn't matter. It is but for a little bit, a little time. Yes, in the middle of it, it seems like the worst possible thing ever, and maybe it is the worst possible thing you've ever experienced. But it still has an end. And if we persevere... We build character, and character leads to hope. We put things back in a right perspective. Suffering suddenly fades because of the hope that is within us. For further study, I want to encourage you to read C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain. It's a tough one to find. Uh, I don't know that the book is actually out there. Sometimes you have to find it in a, like if they put four or five of his writings together, you might have to get all of them. Read them all. Start with The Problem of Pain. It's a great a great read. It's not an easy read. It'll take you a while. Let me end with two stories of persecution. I pulled these off of the persecution.org website. Okay? Both of these happened within the United States within the last week or so. At least that's when they were reported. A Christian student group at Vanderbilt University has been told by the school's administration that it will lose its rec recognized status on campus unless the group removes its requirements that its leaders have a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. Okay, it's a Christian group. In their bylaws, in order to be a leader in that, you have to profess and show a commitment to Jesus Christ. Vanderbilt will remove their status as a campus group unless they take that out. Despite a discussion with school officials at the beginning of the year that led members of the group to believe their bylaws were approved, the group was told last week that the university's new policy barring religious groups from selecting members and leaders based on faith requirements will disqualify the groups next school year. They'll no longer be, which means they won't have a place to meet on campus. They'll have to go out, find some other place to meet. They'll still be able to meet, just not on campus. They won't be recognized. Here's another one. How many NASCAR fans do we have? And you'll admit it. Three of you, one sheepishly. Okay. Blake Koch, 
K-O-C-H. You ever heard of him? Okay. Well, here's his story. Although many applaud the prayer meetings in NASCAR circles, not everyone is willing to tolerate Christian values on the racetrack. Indeed, NASCAR driver Blake Koch, or Koch is being persecuted for his faith. Following California's Royal Purple 300, Koch sat just 28 points out of the top 10 driver standings. But he was, raced, he was forced to race with a blank car after losing his primary sponsor because of a controversy over his Christianity. Coach had partnered with the Rise Up and Register campaign, which works to educate people on the importance of voting in the 2012 elections. But ESPN would not allow the ad to air because of its so-called political and religious overtones. So he, there's an ad for his the company that's sponsoring his car, and during NASCAR events, those sponsors always advertise during the races. ESPN would not allow that sponsor's ad to air. I didn't think that my faith in Christ would have an impact on whether or not a sponsor could air a commercial or not. He told Fox and Friends on March 29th, the one thing I will not do is deny my faith just because a particular sponsor might not like the way I express my faith, which I do on my own time. He's going to stand. In fact, he almost could not race in the next race because you have to have a major sponsor on your car. You can't just drive a blank car. And a Christian organization stepped up and sponsored his car, not looking for an ad or anything else, um, and stepped up and is now his main sponsor. Uh, but those are some of the things that are we're starting to see um, here in the United States. So don't fear persecution. Don't fear suffering. Don't go looking for it. Don't be an idiot. Okay? That's what I need you to get from tonight. Nothing else. Don't be an idiot. Right? Persecuted for righteousness. Not because of your bad people skills. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who loves us, but that you are a God of justice. Because without justice, love would mean nothing. Grace and mercy would be have no power in them. That salvation would mean nothing. Father, strengthen our faith. Lord, while we don't pray for suffering, we know that there's benefits in it. Allow us to, to see when it's coming. Allow us to stand firm in the midst of suffering and, and any uh, persecution, whatever uh, depth of persecution or level of persecution we might find ourselves in. Father, enable us to persevere, to build that 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 biblical Christian character within us that, that results in a, in a newfound hope of being your children. Father, continue to guide us. Lead us into this world that by all possible means we might win some. Father, we, we continue to pray and believe, save our country. To, to turn it back to where it, it, it came from, where it started, grounded in biblical principles. Father, rise up leaders within our communities, within our states, within our, our nation. Officials who, will, who will, will understand a correct fear of you, a reverent fear that to not displease you. Father, you have said that if my people called by my name, humble themselves and pray. I will hear their voice and heal their land. We come before you 
the right understanding of who we are and who you are. That alone is humbling. We are powerless. You are all-powerful. We know nothing. You know everything. Father, use us. Guide us. 